a king and we want him now. We want a king and we want him now. We want a king. Hey, welcome to Civil Discourse. This is not a safe space. I am one of your two co-hosts, Mike, and I am joined by the illustrious, the amazing, the brilliant Charles. It's a crease. So, Charles, say hi to the people. Well, I absolutely will say hi to the people. And just to let you know, Mike, your check is in the mail for uh, those fine words you just sent me. I will uh, get that sent out. Um, welcome. Hey, by the way, one and two cent checks can pay for my walls. So I mean, well, there it is. There it is. Um, welcome, everybody, to uh, this week's episode. And, you know, I, I have to tell you something, Mike. I don't think I've brought this up with you before, but I've had a couple of conversations with some some devoted listeners who have really had some positive uh, feedback for us on uh, their experience of listening to our show. But on a couple of occasions, a question has been asked. What's the question? The question they've had for me is that based on the premise of this show, uh, Civil Discourse, This Is Not a Safe Space, they expected more controversial uh, interaction and, and disagreement and, and vehement civil arguing and, and so forth. And they said, it seems like y'all uh, are not so far apart as as we're sort of expecting with the nature of the show. Oh, ding, ding, ding. I, I think that's the point. But but we're not avoiding these subjects, are we? I, I mean, I think we're going to hit a good one today. I don't think we're avoiding the subjects at all, and it occurs to me we probably should start hitting some of the more controversial topics, but a fair warning to to listeners, don't necessarily expect that we will be virtually throwing tomatoes at each other. That's not what this is about. We we have privately spoken about the subjects that you're told not to speak about in, in Pleasant Company, and, and I don't recall us getting... I mean, passions raised, but I don't think tomatoes have ever been flung uh, along with anything else, by the way. Actually, what's always uh, entertained me is when we have the family dinners and our wives get up to leave because somehow they think we're about to start throwing sharp objects. <laughs> and we've had to sit them down and explain to them, no, this is just the way we speak. And and this used to I be. Think it's, I think it's a great uh, tool. You know, when we want the room to ourselves, we know how to clear it. Oh, true. Then we can fire <laughs> up with cigars and have a great evening. But uh, <laughs> by the way, our wives have no problem with cigars. So I, I'm just talking stuff. But indeed, indeed. So um, anyway, but but I think I, you know, I I really I really want to talk about uh, and and I think you do as well. I I think we should start some of the some a little bit more controversial, and uh, I think the question of the day is what do the two political major political parties in the U.S. stand for, in our opinion, and, and maybe we can throw in uh, some of the third parties as well, uh, which I have a very uh, decent working knowledge of. What do you think? Well, here's an interesting thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna reframe that slightly. Okay. Because the problem, <laughs> the problem, as if there's only one problem. One <laughs> of the many problems. <laughs> I think a major problem with political, with, with, with American politics, and this probably isn't uh, a, a sole issue here in America, but it is absolutely a poignant one here in America, is that when you bring in the concept of the political party, there's a much different conversation around what the philosophical politics or the, the, the realization of the philosophy within those politics uh, actually is, as opposed to thinking about what are the legitimate 
ideas and philosophies that are divergent between the left and the right. And that sometimes has nothing to do with the party. It, it oftentimes has nothing to do with the party. Uh, it, it's one of the, you can be right and you can be a, Repu uh, a Republican or a Democrat and vice versa. You can be left and you can be a Republican Democrat. It may have been more prevalent in the past that you had left-wing Republicans and right-wing Democrats. Uh, but but there's still some out there. Uh, Manchin from West Virginia, I think we could say he's slightly right of center and, and he's a Democratic senator from West Virginia. Uh, and, you know, Mitt Romney, um, from, you know, he, he had his political successes in the, in the Northeast. And I think he's probably a slightly left of center Republican. Well, now, what's interesting is that again, when you start bringing in the parties, political pragmatism has to start being part of the conversation. Of course. And it is very difficult to have an honest, genuine conversation and examination of philosophy when we're just trying to keep our job. And that is, I mean, let's be honest, that is the driving force behind individual politicians, right? Right. It's far more about how do I stay in my office as opposed to how do I really stay true to a philosophy? Because I, in my humble opinion, tell me if you're, I'm wrong, but I would guess that if, if a politician, average politician A, is aligned with his party in X, Y, and Z uh, philosophical points or ideas and, or values, if we want to use that word, and the party starts going in a certain direction either way that don't continue to align with those uh, ideals, very few politicians today, I would imagine, on both sides of the aisle, would stick to their guns. No, they don't. They, do. they would go with the party because that's what I need to do to maintain political support, right? Of course. And, and you know what happens to the rare exceptions where they go against their party, even, even, and I don't want to make this show about Liz Cheney, but this week at this puts mm -hmm. a that makes it not so evergreen, but Liz Cheney just got bumped out of her office. And, and I was looking at her voting record, setting aside whatever you feel about January 6th, whether it was a sedition or it was a, a protest that went awry. Uh, but setting that aside, her voting record is very, quote, Republican, unquote. Absolutely. And so she was literally bounced from her party in the primaries by voters uh, because of one issue, one issue. And so I, I think most go along to get along. And, and then you have the counter arguments. Larry Hogan was the governor of Maryland for two terms. A Democrat, he's a Republican. Democrats outnumber Maryland two to one. And yes, I did my research last night because I knew we were going to talk about this. But Larry Hogan successfully was reelected because he did. Um, I don't want to say he went contrary to the views of his party, but he either did not address particular views or he softened his position on those views. So I think that if I was a listener to this show and um, I really was the question I'd be asking, well, what are the positions that we're supposedly supposed to be aligned with as a right leaning thinker or a left leaning thinker? Because again, going back to our very first episode, I said that my experience, personally me, Charles, in the world has been that 99.9% .9 of everyone on this planet, and I've met a few people, I've been to a few countries, um, have one singular goal when they get up in the morning, and that's to go to bed that night 
still alive, still healthy, well fed, and you know within their their family circle, uh, in in good condition and a good job and so forth. People are just trying to survive, and 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 maybe do a little good in the world while they do it. Most people, I really believe that. Are there exceptions? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah they're, they're, they're psychopaths or they're oh, mentally yeah. ill or or they just don't care and they're so far over one way or the other on an issue that they don't see any compromise with anybody. But I agree with you, regardless of your political affiliations. Regardless- Most people are just trying to, to yeah. get through their day. And if that's the case, even if we have some divergence on how best to get through our day, I have to believe that we have a lot more in common with each other uh, as as a people than we are being led to believe that we we do. I agree. Now, before we get too much deeper, I do have to put a disclaimer here up front. I am not a Republican, but I will try to articulate what I believe the Republican positions to be the best I can. If I am mistaken, and it's been three or four years since I read the party platforms, both of them, uh, if I am mistaken, please feel free to to reach out to us and correct me. I, I'm I'm going to do, try to do the best I can if we talk about Republican positions. Uh, but if I'm mis- completely mistaken or something has changed, please let me know. I I I, it's not my intention to besmirch either party in this conversation because I don't think that's civil. Uh, so well, that's also not our goal. We we we're trying to understand, right, and to illuminate for ourselves and for 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 you all, the listeners, what are the actual positions. And and I should say, since you've uh, eloquently put and thoughtfully put forward uh, where you stand relative to the the right wing party in in our country, I while I am registered as a Democrat, I have to say that. I I depart often with mainstream democratic politics. Um, doesn't mean I depart to go towards Republican politics, but it's definitely. I, I think you and I both have said this before. We find ourselves in the no man's land of yeah. political theory because I don't align with the far right on many many issues. But uh, there are some major topics. We've hit a few. We're going to get to more on the left that I'm not on that page either. So, you know, I think, and, and I'd like to think that we're probably not alone there. I think there's a big struggle in this country with our two party system for people to have a sense of where we can still be a viable participant without completely compromising, uh, some, some, you know, basic values that we hold wherever they may come from. Agreed. And, and, you know, it's it's interesting because one of the discussions we've had very recently when we were on vacation is I, I call myself a hardcore libertarian. And you asked the question. I was ill at the time, so we didn't get to go down that road. What does Likely that excuse. What, what does that mean <laughs> when you say that? And it's, the funny thing, unlike the well, I shouldn't say that. That's being mean. It, it's really easy for me to define when I say I'm a hardcore libertarian. What I mean is you don't hurt other other people unprovoked. And you don't take their stuff. And that's really, uh, uh, it's a true libertarian philosophy. It's articulated in the Mises School of Libertarianism uh, much more eloquently than I just said it. But really, it's its you don't mess with other people. You don't harm them uh, unprovoked. And you don't take their stuff. So that- so, so here's, here's what's interesting about that. Because based on that definition, and I know you to be a, a thoughtful and, and well-researched uh, individual on these topics. So when you say that for, to, to live that philosophy right there lands you into 
the world of libertarianism, politically speaking. Right. And you can be right or left libertarian, just like you can be right or left Republican or Democrat. And, and the situation, just real quickly for background, um, when, when you made that statement, we were talking to the innkeeper we were staying with right. at the time, and he is a, an active participant in New Hampshire politics, uh, or has been at least. I don't know if he's retired yet or not. But, and he lands on the, on the left side of the aisle. I think he's I a didn't, Democrat. I didn't know that. I, I didn't assume anything. So. Well, my, I, I don't, I, you know, let me be clear. I don't know for sure, but my guess is in the conversations I've had with them that they are on the left, whether they're registered Democrats or not, I don't know. But he, I watched him as you were talking, have a physical reaction to, and and recoil to a degree um, about the idea of using your exact words, hardcore libertarian. That's exactly what you called yourself. Now, there are a number of hard, self-proclaimed hardcore libertarians who are extremely active right now in New Hampshire politics, a, a state which is, what is it? Live, what is it? Live free? Live free or die. Or die. I mean, yeah. a state which its motto is libertarian in the sense that you're talking about. Right. But there has been, and, and I don't know well enough to speak to to intelligently about it, but I will say that there has been a significant organiz- organized effort amongst a number of self-proclaimed hardcore libertarians to really shift the balance of uh, New Hampshire politics up there in a way that, at least for that innkeeper we were uh, talking to, has has provided has been problematic. Um, it, it is. It's called the Free State Project. They they are settling twenty thousand people who are politically active in New Hampshire, uh, intentionally, and they pick New Hampshire because it is live free or die, and, and was relatively libertarian before they showed up. Uh, you know, they've never had seatbelt laws. They they mm-hmm. were the last state to raise the drinking age from eighteen to twenty one. They've never had helmet laws, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's 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 just it's always been very libertarian in in theory anyway. Uh, what upset him most was uh, New Hampshire has the largest state legislature in the country for a little tiny state. I find that incredible. That goes back to Keith's every blade of grass has a rep uh, from a previous <laughs> episode. Yeah. Uh, you, you can literally meet every single voter in your district uh, in, in a few days if you're running for office in New Hampshire. And the, the day that I said that, they had entered uh, a proposal as a law for New Hampshire to secede from the United States. Oh, I didn't know this. Yeah, I, I went back and re- I was sick, so we didn't get a chance to talk about it. But I went back and researched. I was like, why would he be like that? Because if he is a Democrat, half the time the, the, the libertarians are agreeing with him. And, and so, and I found this out. And I think as a legislator, if you think about that, that's pretty, that's pretty radical. And so I think that's why we got the reaction we got. Well, and I think that's one of a, a fairly good list of uh, efforts that they had been making, you know, that was just that day and that's a pretty peak worthy day. Um, but there had been some history up to that point and it doesn't really matter. The, the I think the substance of our point for this is this idea of identity politics, right. identity uh, philosophy. And there are terms that we use to describe ourselves as we think of ourselves that we have to remember when we're speaking to somebody, their vocabulary may be different than ours. 
And so in your case, as, since it was the example at the time, when you said the phrase hardcore libertarian, and I know you not to be the radical that some people may be, if if those radicals are also calling themselves the same thing, somebody who doesn't know the difference between you and this person is going to see a box and put you in it. Of course. That's, that's human nature. Of course. And that's not necessarily accurate. And the same thing happens to me. I mean, a lot of people think I'm this uh, huge uh, tree hugging. Uh, what's the word? Uh, my I, ne- no, my nephew called you, me. I've caught your, you caught you with your arms wrapped around an oak. Don't oh, no, I am a tree hugger. There's no question about that. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. I, but we are both environmentally conscious in the tree hugger world. So anyway. Well, and it's interesting because environment is a perfect place to start. There is an idea of where right philosophy towards the environment and politics as it relates to the environment sits and left philosophy. And there's where where legislation comes in, there's a, a wide gap there, you know, in what people think should be the law stepping in to to deal with environmental based issues. And, you know, that's one of the longest topics. There's certainly disparity there. And and I think it may not even be disparity in thought process many times. Sometimes it is. But but I think it's in what potential solutions are. Before we before we get to environment, though, let's talk about real quickly. Allow indulge me a moment to talk about the one thing where Democrats and Republicans are always exact, almost exactly the same. And, And that is foreign policy. When it comes to foreign policy, no matter who we elect, we get John McCain. (laughs) <laughs> you know, George Bush started the war. Barack Obama took office. He expanded the war to, I think, 17 countries. Uh, Donald Trump didn't add any wars, but he didn't end any. And, and our, our current resident of the White House, I think, ended two of those 17 wars, if I recall correctly. And I may be off there, so that's not gospel. Uh, I think well, and Donald- we've, we've done a previous episode where we talked about foreign policy to right. a degree. Uh, but regardless of party, two wings on the same bird. I'm just telling you. It's just, uh, I, I looked at the list of people who did not vote for the Iraq war uh, last night in preparation for this episode. It, it was pretty evenly split between the two parties on who voted against the Iraq war. Well, and here again, there. so I think of a couple of different motivations for our, where people sit on with respect to uh, military engagement. And this is this is hard because amongst the people, and, the, you know, again, uh, political pragmatism, I would imagine that after 9-11, th- there was a certain energy in this country, and justifiably perhaps, um, that we have to go do something. You know, we have to go attack someone. We can't just sit here. And, you know, obviously I can understand and sympathize with why we felt that way. But did we do something just to do something or did we actually go into a place with an idea uh, that it was related to what was in it? And, and, and I think it's been more than proven. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Saddam Hussein was not part of 9-11. Oh, he wasn't. Uh, <laughs> and, and one of the countries that was part of 9-11, we basically get Keith and I talked about it in a previous episode. We kind of gave a pass their actions because it wasn't the government. It was just people who lived in that country, uh, which is oftentimes the truth with these kind of things where it's not the, the government that did this. It's, it's people who were there in that country that did it. 
And, and yes, uh, bin Laden was in Afghanistan. There's no argument to that. The government of Afghanistan uh, wasn't uh, funding him. He, he was self-funded. He's a multimillionaire. So why, and, and I don't want to make this about Iraq, but just very quickly. You don't need to, but <laughs> I, I just brought that up to say both parties are fully culpable. So when we point at George Bush or we point at Barack Obama, your guy did it too. I'm just saying. No, it's 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 no question, and the nature of warfare um, cha changes with every new technology, with every new philosophy. Um, you know, dro drones were not a thing, uh, if, if memory serves. Uh, not not at the level that they are now, uh, as we think of them when 9/11 uh, happened. Am I, the drone they, technology they had advanced. them, but it wasn't, you right. know, yeah. It advanced because of, of a, a war in Iraq and Afghanistan, yeah. just as forward-looking infrared radar and uh, and uh, other technologies developed during the Vietnam War. Uh, and, and war does lead to scientific development. Uh, it's one of the... It's the motivation for progress. It, it is. Te technological progress, let me put it that way. And, and the theoretical discussion of whether that development would happen with or without war, we can have another time. I'm going to set that in the booth. But I did want to bring that one up, but you were getting ready to talk about the environment. I don't well, want to- no, no, before we jump that, I think sure. I think this is, this is a great point because you're right. Historically speaking, at least let's talk about the last 50 to 80 years in this country where uh, foreign, at least foreign military engagement has been, there has not been, despite what people may say during uh, political campaigns, there has not been the a, a, a great chasm between the actual activities of both parties. And it's interesting. Why, why is that? Because what is the motivating factor? Because is it is it money? You know, we talked about the uh, the military industrial complex that it's an economic reality. We have to keep the military engaged uh, to continue to bring in the bucks. Uh, is it a power based thing uh, that you know we have to maintain our superiority on the international uh, stage? That's a legitimate argument. Uh, not that I agree with the right, right. idea, no, but that that is the motivation is a very legitimate argument. Um, you know, is it that public opinion demands we do this? Uh, you know, like we had to do something. We weren't prepared to go into Afghanistan, but we could certainly point our finger at Iraq to get in there. And we sent Colin Powell, who in every other respect, I always thought of as a very thoughtful, upright and 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 cons considerate person uh, that I either he was given very false notes or he knew that what he went and testified in front of Congress wasn't true, but that was his job to right. do what My the president told him. The man says he was lied to, and, and I admit that I'm biased. I've always thought the world of Colin Powell. Oh, you and me both. And so it's it's hard to reconcile. You know, was that a sound of a, a deep sense of duty? His job is to toe the party line and his boss, the president, sent him to do a job, whether he agreed with it or not. Or did he actually have was he given false witness? You know, well, so, and we may never know the answer to that. We probably uh, will know, never know. I, I, I know what I personally feel, uh, but but I, I don't want to, again, derail this conversation too much. I, I just, you know, it, it's it's a, a personal philosophy. And and by the way, there were Democrats during Vietnam who were vehemently opposed to the war, uh, that war. 
and, and some Republicans. And, and if you go back 20, 30 years before that, 20 years before that, there were Republicans who were deeply opposed to the war. Robert Taft was known as Mr. Republican in the 1950s, and, and he was vehemently opposed to war, very much in the Ron Paul tradition. And, and I was going to bring up, let's talk about some of the anti-war Democrats and Republicans real quickly. Mm -hmm. Tulsi Gabbard, Dennis Kucinich from the Democrats immediately come to mind. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Ron Paul from the Republicans. And how are they portrayed by the media, all three of them? Loonies. Yes. So, <laughs> so not wanting to – and by the way, there's – I wouldn't bit, say that's just in the media, though. I mean, you don't hear these people spoken of. Because Tulsi had the incident with uh, – they sort of – you know, that's the third rail we don't touch. But as far as Ron Paul and these others, I mean, they, they politically, it's not just the media. They're pretty much ignored by the body politic in general. And, and interesting, two of the three, I don't know about Kucinich, I don't, but two of the three of them are combat veterans. Tulsi Gabbard and Ron Paul are Well, what both, do they know then? <laughs> yeah, are both combat veterans. And, and so I, I think, I, and I brought them up, and I admire all three of those people, by the way. I, I, you've heard me in private conversation talk about my admiration for Tulsi Gabbard. And believe, had she been the Democratic nominee, she would have spanked uh, Donald Trump, would have spanked him. It wouldn't have even been close because she would have, she would have carried a lot of uh, Republicans who just have great admiration for military veterans who served in combat. Well, that's an interesting question, and this is a total derailment, but I'm going to go here anyway. <laughs> We've already <laughs> but, but seriously, does a woman hold as much, a woman a combat vet hold as much respect in the eye of the right side of this country, the right wing, as, as a man? Well, I, I will tell you, I listened to a right-leaning uh, radio show the day after uh, her, um, the first debate. And if you remember the first debate, she was wearing a white suit and she stood ramrod straight, mm -hmm. ramrod military straight in that debate the whole time. No hunching, no slut. And she was very articulate. And, and I and I am in the military capital of the United States in the greater Tidewater area of Virginia. And so it was a local show. And, and I listened to the callers calling in and saying, if she's the Democratic nominee, I'm going to cross party lines and vote for her. And, and so I, I don't think the... Um, the sex issue is an issue with the military community okay? like it was 30 years ago. Okay. I think now with so many women who, who served in combat and, and who, who sacrificed in combat and, and you can go to the VA hospital and see them walking on the same uh, artificial limbs that, that male combat veterans are walking on. I, I think that that perception has, has moved greatly just, just as some other issues where, uh, if I told you 15 years ago that 80% of Republicans supported gay marriage, you would have told me I was crazy. Uh, but, but that's reality today. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's funny how certain things shift when people see how it impacts their next door neighbor. Well, that, that's a very true statement. <laughs> oh, Bring it so home. We can have a long th theoretical discussion regarding women in combat, but that doesn't mean that we don't honor the women who served in combat. Well, I certainly hope we do because Lord knows they deserve it. Of course. Um, so moving on. All right. So there we are with military conquest of the world. Uh, environmental issues. Um, I think we can all agree that clean air is an important thing. Why do we disagree that there should be laws to help protect it? I think it's it's a matter of what we think the solutions are. And, and again, I'm, I'm not a Republican, but and, and so 
I, I think, uh, and, and correct me if you disagree, I think a lot of the movement on the Democratic side towards clean energy is specifically involving solar and wind power. We've got to have the, and, and I read that bill, that just, uh, the summary of that bill that just passed, and a lot of it is about solar wind power. And, and I think that's where we deviate. I, I think the right sees the solution as being nuclear power. Nuclear power is incredibly well, I, Okay, so hang on a second. I, I would disagree with you that it's about the promotion of solar and wind, et cetera. I would say that it's about the idea that what is causing the issue is the burning of fossil fuels. Right, but fossil fuels... <sighs> At the levels that we are. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. You don't think we hit the hard issues. Reality is, in the current world, the 20th century, the development of fossil fuels led to the prosperity that has been global. Uh, in Nobody disagrees with that. In 1890, 80% of all Americans were agrarians. I may be off on that number, but roughly 80%. No. If you look at the photos of the early turn of the century in New England alone, there are barely any forest anywhere because we were all, it was all farmland. Right. That's how you made, that's how you survived. And the so the industrial the revolution, which began the start of major fossil fuel consumption is what shifted us away from agriculture to industry. Right. And, and I think, uh, there's a view, and I, I just heard it on uh, another podcast recently where uh, a, a nationally famous podcaster, uh, probably one of the top five podcasts in, in the country, was talking to a guy about fossil fuels. And, and he simply said, if we shut off all the fossil fuel, uh, you, you, first, his first point was you can't eliminate them right now unless you build nuclear. And number two, uh, he, he made the comment about Tesla. He said, I hope you're enjoying your coal powered car. Because the vast majority of electricity in this country is being produced by coal. And then the other point that was made in that show was uh, people see coal and they see 1940 coal. And that's not what coal looks like in 2020. And again, I, I think the answer is a combination of wind, solar, and nuclear, personally. Uh, but when we say nuclear, we all think Three Mile Island or the one in Japan or Chernobyl. And that is not today's nuclear either, is it? So, uh, those well, the one in Japan, I mean, that wasn't that long ago. And that, but that plant was really old. And, and so the safeties, that's, I, I, I can't remember. There's Gen 1, 2, 3, I think in 4, that was a Gen 3 plant. And so new plants are Gen 4 plants. Uh, and so I didn't know you were going to bring up um, energy, but I, I had been doing some research because like you, I thought we needed to hit some other topics. If you look at the top 10 uh Greatest capacity electric plants in the United States, eight of those 10 are nuclear power. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think there's any question. Dam was one of them and the other one was natural gas. If if everything goes according to plan uh, and we come up with a way to properly and in a long-term safety capacity do something with the leftover other than make bombs, then yeah, nuclear is great. Um, and, and there may be a lot of reality that doesn't align with perception on where today's version of nuclear pursuits leads us. Um, but of course the details as to how old, uh, the, the Japanese plant was and so forth. I mean, these are not, 
things that most people who are going to be engaged in this conversation have that information. So all they know is nuclear plant blew up, poison, bad. <laughs> you know, and that's, hey, that's a fair concern. I'm not dismissing <laughs> that concern. I am absolutely not dismissing that concern. And I'm sure engineer Keith is, is looking in the background to remind us how old that plant is or was. But, but I think the other thing is, and, and the other big dispute on this issue, other than the solution is one side thinks a one degree raise in average temperature centigrade by the, or Celsius, by the way, sorry, I showed my age there for a moment. A one degree raise in Celsius is probably not a big deal. And the other side sees it as a, uh, the beginning of a problem. And so, uh, and you and I have had this discussion where I said, well, we do know that we're coming out of a, a mini ice age. So there's going to be some increase in temperature. And then the argument you've heard me make is that more people die from cold than heat, three times more. Uh, and, but if, if the Democratic side is right, and this is the beginning, and now it becomes 10 degrees, it is a real issue. And so- but we can't wait till it hits 10 degrees. Of course, of course not. And the problem is, is that we as a species do not like to engage an issue until death and bane is upon us. Of course. And, and I that's think that's a problem. The <laughs> if, if I think it's, if I, and I'm not, if I think it's going to be two degrees and you think it's going to be 10 degrees, that's where the disparity happens, don't you think? Not if, so here's the difference that I would argue when it comes to these kind of, especially environmental issues. There, you know, we can argue, there, there's often language that disparages the value of, of science. And, and when I say that, I mean, not that science doesn't have value, but to what extent should we put our faith in today's conclusions? Because today's conclusions are not yesterday's conclusions, and they're very possibly not tomorrow's science conclusions. Science is ever-changing. Yes, we agree on that, I'm sure. So. But with ever-changing, there is still uh, the, the science of trend and monitoring trend. And if trend is showing us a very specific direction that things are moving and perhaps increasing, uh, you know, that we call the, the term exponential, uh, that something may be increasing at a rate uh, far faster than than we are able to make adjustments for. Do we just ignore that or do we engage it? And, and that's the way it was sold. And unfortunately, it was sold with real dates on it. Well, that, but that was a marketing failure. Yeah. And so, you know, the hockey stick ain't happened yet. And it's supposed, we're supposed to be mid hockey stick right now. And so. Well, now here's the thing though. Uh, it's hard to say. And, and, and again, I don't want to make this a debate about the issue itself. But I, I we're, got we're you, discussing but I think it's an issue that does divide the two. But look at the drought conditions across this country. Look at the fire situation. Look at the average trending uh, seasonal shifts. I have said in my brief 40 years of life, which is nothing on a, a geographic level, uh, geologic level, excuse me, um, or an environmental one as far as the, uh, uh, um, what's the term? I'm Climate, excuse me, a, cl a climate level. Uh, in my 40 years of life, I've seen a huge shift in what a summer and a winter in New England looks like. So I'm going to give you the counter argument. Well, hang on a second. Before you counter okay, it, let ahead. me explain what that means. 
It was with consistency as I was a child, and I grew up on a lake in uh, western, southern, central Massachusetts. It was consistently uh, the experience growing up that I was watching ice fishermen drive their trucks out onto the lake, um, and we would be skating and so forth and so forth, uh, all sorts of winter activity out on the ice on a regular basis shortly after Thanksgiving. And that would stay there through the early part of March, mid things would start to get soft as April approached. Uh, in the last close to probably 15, 20 years, longer than that actually, um, you would be lucky if you were able to walk out on the ice one or two days in the winter. And, in, and and more consistently now, it, down here in Southern Connecticut, uh, the, the the lakes don't, it's rare to see a freezing uh, on a consistent level each winter. So, and, and, and summers are the, are the opposite. You know, time was that we would have a few days in New England of, of hot and humid and, you know, what you have is a normal summer down in Virginia, right? Uh, right? That it would be really uncomfortable. It would last for two or three days maybe, and then it would break and it would be in the upper 70s and dry and so forth. And then it would it would oscillate back and forth throughout the summer. But you n- now it's the normal expectation we have that it gets hot and humid and it stays that way almost steadily from mid-June through August. It does not shift back like it used to. Now, I'm not a scientist. I don't know, you know, what the exact numbers and trends are and so forth, but these are clear and observable shifts. In your region. And this, well, is, the same, this is the same mistake we all make where I sit here in June and it's 57 degrees out here in Virginia. And I say, yeah, thanks for that global warming. We, we cannot do that. And well, think, this is why I talk about trend. Right, right. Obviously, weather now, is different than climate. Climate deals with trends. And, and droughts, you know, droughts have always occurred. You can read about droughts from 5,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, uh, droughts of the Great Dust Bowl, mm-hmm. which was a years and years drought that, mm-hmm. that caused that. So droughts are not a new trend. Uh, I, I think a lot of folks see forest fires and droughts and all those things and say, well, that's global warming. Yeah, not so fast. Not so fast, but I think. I by think the way, people, by the way, what you're illustrating there is, you know, for the purposes of our topic today, this is the idea that would would be on the right side of the aisle. For most, some would say it's not warming. Some would. Uh, I think we. I want to know where they're living because I'm ready to move. <laughs> well, I, I think we can look at the scientific data, and I think I stated this up front that there has been a one degree Celsius increase in temperature globally when you take all the averages. Now, I, I don't want to dispute that. Let's, let's just uh, agree that that's the case at the moment. Uh, the other thing is we speak out as individuals who belong to these parties. We speak out of both sides of our mouth. Uh, global warming is a huge issue, but I'm buying real estate on the ocean. If you truly believe that, why are you buying real estate on the ocean? Well, I'm not, for the record. <laughs> I'm not talking about you. I'm about, <laughs> I buy really high up on the hill. <laughs> but my point is, 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 yeah, global warming is an issue for, for, for one side, but uh, for the Democratic side, uh, but I don't see it in the action. You know, I don't see it in, um, in the size of the houses they live in. And, you know, you can take a, go on the line and see how big Al Gore's house is. 
Uh, when you go to those global climate summits, go look for all the private jets sitting at the airport. Well, hypocrisy has never been course, in question. But I think you can. Again, I forget what it is, but there's an island. Is it off the coast of South Carolina? And I don't remember the name of it as I'm sitting here. Um, that, off the coast of South Carolina. No, but there's one in particular that has typically been um, – you know, one of these that throughout the year would fluctuate or something like this where you could drive out there or you couldn't. And it's the, the, the sea level uh, elevation of the island is very, very low. And it's been the last couple of years that they've talked about how it is becoming the, a point where they, it's not going to be habitable because more now more than not, it is underwater. And they're finding these high tide flooding. This was just on it was a National Geographic. I just saw this the other day. They looked at all kinds of regions around the Gulf and areas where high tide flooding, I believe was the term they used, was becoming a much more regular experience. And this is they're talking about sea level rise. Um, also a symptom that is being associated with the, the melting of, of ice caps and things that are contributing to a higher sea level rise. And so on a more regular basis than ever before recorded, at least, uh, the, the flooding that's happening inland, further and further inland, on just a regular shift of tide, not talking about rainy periods right. or storms, yeah. just regular shift, uh, is becoming more and more problematic. Um, England just recorded their hottest day ever on in, in recorded history um, two, three weeks ago. I, uh, and I get it. But we also, again, need to remember that data is, is new and new meaning 100 years ago is new. 150 years ago is new. Well, and I think that's 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 the interesting thing, because the argument I've made and we probably are going further down this environmental subject than we should. That's okay. <laughs> but the argument I've made is that if we've been keeping records for a little longer than a hundred years, uh, though they were more, they were less consistent right. prior to and, that. And the measurement tool was not as accurate. That's certainly true. Um, but I think the the question I have is: Have we seen greater shifts in shorter time periods? Um. That are co that coincide with the level of uh, what we believe is environmental impact that we are having, and this goes now back to more of that conversation about where the left and right sits. The left, I would generally hazard to say, feels that uh, we are having a severe impact in continuing to as a species, not just right. Americans, the Chinese, the Indians, everyone who's burning the stuff. They can count. We have the tools now to count the particulate matter that we're pumping out into the air. Um, and as that has continued to increase, especially as more people are coming into industrial level living um, and trying to achieve, you know, Western style quality of life, we're burning more stuff. More is going out. The temperature is going up. The water is coming up with it. The left is not so I'm sorry, the right is not so sure that those are consistent. Um, I think the right's well aware that 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 the industrialization of India and, and China specifically. Uh, and by the way, I think if you look at the top 10 most polluted cities in the world, nine of them are either in India or China. I lived in China. Let me tell you. It's bad. I, I know. Uh, it's now they, they do have a clear day from time to time and they are starting to put some regulation, government involvement. Um, 
which, you know, really sort of this leads well into a a big part of the topic. Uh, Can, will the people make changes without uh, legal uh, demand? I I think the Chinese government speaks again out of both sides of their mouth because they're building coal plants like crazy. So it's one of those things, but but let's not get too deep in this because I'd love to at least hit one more topic where there is some diversity. But I think, uh, you know, I, I think we all recognize that Mexico City, uh, because of their their altitude combined with the, the level of industrialization, I think is the other most po- uh, polluted city. And, and so there are well, factors. Well, and population. Keep, keep in mind, Mexico City right. for a time was one of the most Huge. populous Huge. in the world. Right. I but, think but Shanghai I think is long past it now. <laughs> the, the argument I've always heard when I also, you know, you and I have been to a couple places on Earth. And, betwe- and between us have probably been to most of the earth. I, the argument I always hear from folks in those areas is you guys got yours. Why are you trying to keep us from getting ours? It's a legitimate argument. And it, it is a very legitimate argument. The United States for, for all our faults. And by the and, way, most, uh, just to add to their point, because I, I don't disagree with where they're coming from. Part of how we got ours was taking it from them. Of course. And we're still <laughs> taking it from them when yes. they're mining for our, our lithium and all the other the, all the other products that we need for our, our, our electric cars, which I love, by the way, I'm not denigrating electric cars. I, I love driving them. They're fun and, and have seriously considered getting one. And I have a hybrid sitting out in the driveway, but, but we also need to realize the environmental impact of yes. that as well. And, and social, so, environmental and social impact beyond the, what, uh, the tip of our driveways. And you also are an electric car enthusiast, so so we share that passion. But I think you're right. I think this is an issue where there is a divide, and, and it's not a recognition of the current state. It's a recognition of what got us to the current state. It's what we, one side thinks got us there, what the other side thinks has got us there. And there are people in the middle, by the way, Charles, that think it's both. I, I, would, I would caution dismissing the recognition of the current state. I think there are plenty of people who still are buying that there's nothing that, that there's nothing doing. It's fine. I, I think um, that those a tool where we say, if you don't agree with me or denier, <laughs> I'm well, just, you know, it's funny. I, I, I see it more down near you, but I've certainly seen it up here near me. Um, the 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 diesel truck uh, folks who like to I, I don't I forget what they call it but they oh, retune oh, yeah oh. and and they put this black smoke pipes coming up and I mean I love being on a motorcycle and have one of these guys who really thinks he's really cool come and gun his black smoke in my face that really makes me hey, happy hey the question for our listeners and please email us which one of us owes a diesel truck. Well, I was about to admit it myself. I well, do have late. one. You gave him the answer. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. I do. First of all, I wasn't shopping for one. It was the only one I could find. Thank you, COVID. And I needed a pickup truck. But the difference is I literally have my truck as a tool and drive it only as a tool, uh, unless for some reason. I wasn't picking. I was just. No, no, no. But I no. I think it's an important point. I didn't buy it for a status symbol. I didn't buy it to show off. Um, I like it. Don't get me wrong. I love driving my truck, but uh, I drive it to the hardware store or the lumber yard to pick up wood to build my kid a a tree house. I don't go coal rolling people off the road in their Priuses. And and by the way, that's just rude. rude. Oh, it's incredibly immature. We all want clean water. We all want clean air. We all want these things. And, and, you know, at the dawn of the industrial age, the United States was no different than what China is now. 
Oh, it, things were a mess. You and, couldn't walk into the city down the streets in New York. Of course. <laughs> add to that the horse manure. Well, so, I was just going to say, they actually, I, I'm trying to remember, but there was a whole, because the horses were, of course, doing what they do in the streets, and it became a major problem. Um, right. A tonnage uh, of stuff that was trying to be cleaned up and picked up and so forth. And I can't even begin to imagine the smell of the place. So, so pick <laughs> another issue where the parties deviate hard. Well, I, I think that a, a good one to talk about is the value of legislation, because all of these issues in many ways come back to <laughs> where gonna... <laughs> do is is the solution. And, you know, you'll hear let the market decide, let the market take care of yeah, it. Yeah, but I'm going to tell you that's rhetoric and and, and I'm going to take an opposite position from you in that I don't think either side has any opposition to legislation. I've watched uh, parties shift and I've been around a few years longer than you have. And I've seen both parties control the House, the Senate and the presidency. I've seen it over and over and over again. And and I don't see any of the values that either party espouses with rare exception. The the um, the what what was the real name of Obamacare? Oh, the uh, um, affordable, affordable. Yeah, I never called it that. The Affordable Care Act. I think that was one of the worst acts of marketing. Rare exceptions of maybe the Affordable Care Act or cutting the the marginal tax rate for the Republicans from twenty three to twenty one percent, or or the actually the one that they did very successfully do that was partially undone was lower the and where we had the highest industrial tax rate in the world. We did. The Republicans did come in and lower that significantly where the United States was pretty much on average with Europe after that. Uh, but but on rare occasions do those things happen. But when it comes to legislation, uh, both sides pass laws like crazy. I, I mean, it's just nuts. Uh, you know, some of the some of the bills that Republicans complain about to this day, Medicare Part D um, and the 1986 Gun Control Act were signed by Republican presidents. And so this this thing where we talk about legislation. Well, okay. The Republican Party was a very different party in the night in the nineteen eighties, and one of their own presidents got shot at. So the attitude was a little different back then. Yeah, well, that act didn't take care of that. Well, no- that that's I'm, I'm not making that point. The yeah. it's just we we cannot take the 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 attitudes of the time out of the equation when we just say i mean you know the the republican party today loves to talk about how they are the party of lincoln well there's a real ignoring of history of th- in that is. statement <laughs> so. my my point is is if you look at, at bills passed in four year blocks you don't see a lot of difference in the number of bills that are passed. Uh, well, I, I, I completely agree with you. I don't think it's a question of number of bills, but here's what the question I would ask. What is the subject matter and nature of those bills depending on the, uh, the party? Generally, they always expand government. And I think we do need yeah, to- Yeah, but again, into, into what areas are we talking about? Well, healthcare, uh, both, both sides pass lots of bills about healthcare. The one says, let the market prevail. And the other says, no, we need to help. Um, we we see lots of bills regarding healthcare. We see lots of expansion. Well, now, okay, uh, I'm, and again, I, I apologize for my ignorance. I'm trying to think of in recent years, and let's just take Obamacare because we've had uh, the the Congress has shifted parties several times since uh, since the Healthcare Act was passed. Um, the Republicans, for the most part, were touting. They didn't do it, but they were touting that they were going to repeal it. 
and that was election fodder. They had when no the time intent. came. Yeah, they couldn't do it. Right. But was it because they didn't want to or because they just didn't have enough power, uh, enough seats to to cover it? I, I, I don't recall if the filibuster was threatened. It may have been a filibuster issue. They may not have had enough seats to, to be filibuster proof, but it never even it, it was introduced. It never I don't think it ever even came to the floor as a vote in the Senate. I think it might have been voted on in the, in the House. Uh, Obama had passed, you know, just going down the line here as it's popping in my head uh, during the Obama years. And again, most for many of our listeners go before Obama. We can't remember what happened. Um, The a number of environmental based legislation um, beefing up uh, concerns of water and this, that and the other. Um, My memory of the Trump years was that he successfully very quickly repealed a number of of the environmental based issues with the full support of uh the republican members of congress i don't remember the numbers well he did it he did it through executive action uh generally it was leases on uh leases for drilling it's the same thing that uh uh the next president undid and, and those kind of actions uh it wasn't there. As far as I know, there was no legislation that was passed that that uh, changed much of anything. And, and by the way, I think you well, may be right about that, because as you're saying that, I'm I'm remembering that I, I seem to recall President Obama tried to get legislation to happen in a number of these things. And it wasn't happening right. even within. I mean, uh, the Affordable Care Act finally happened, but it was quite- by the way another another issue where both parties are the same. They love, 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 love their executive orders, and uh, regardless of who the president is, generally as a rule, with I think the exception of Trump, uh, they always sign more than their predecessor. Uh, but so that's fairly new. It that's, is. That's it fairly is. new, and part of the reason that I think that's an issue is because Congress. If you look historically speaking, um, I can't remember now, um, and I apologize, I didn't do this research ahead of time, but there was a president back in around the turn of the uh, 19th and the 20th century who referred to his Congress as a do-nothing Congress. And I mean, he was appalled by the failure to, to, to engage a wide range of issues. And yet the Congress of that period passed something like 300 percent more legislation than uh, the, the, the current, not the current one. But this was back during, um, I think uh, it was either Trump or, or late Obama. I can't remember because it had shifted. Um, and, and that was the point that, you know, back then what was considered a do nothing Congress was way more active than the one we had uh, well, more recently. Yeah. Regulation has changed, though. It used to be that every law had to be go through Congress. Mm-hmm. We walked away from that in that basically civil servants now write law. Tell me more. So the all laws in the U.S. are in a, in a book, a book, and I use the word a with big quotes because it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands and thousands of books called the CFR. Congress ain't passing those laws. And part of my English, by the way, as a teacher, I use terrible grammar. Congress isn't passing those laws. Um, 
and I said ain't on purpose. Yeah. Uh, it, it is literally being written by some GS-15 or GS-14 in, in Washington, D.C. into the CFR, which is the combined federal record, I think is what CFR stands for. And so you can't keep it in one room. We have, uh, just for a quick example for a future conversation, there are 20,000 laws pertaining to firearms. 20,000 laws. So Within what? Within the, the the national law books or per state or what? It's, a, it's an average per state plus the national. Okay. So my, my point is that there's lots of laws. It's just who's putting the laws on the books is what's switched. And so we get a president who comes in on, on day one and says, we're going to open this pipeline for oil and we're going to drill on, on, on federal land. And then the next guy comes in and says, we're not going to drill on federal land and we're going to shut these pipelines down. And, and they can do that with a stroke of a pen. Mm -hmm. and, and as recently as Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter, they would have never thought to do that. And by the way, quick reminder for, for our listeners, I know you know this, the president that vetoed the most bills in the history of the United States who had the same party in the House and Senate as he was, was Jimmy Carter. <laughs> so I always like to all, remind all in only four years, uh, but Jimmy Carter and, and probably Reagan to a degree were the last, I shouldn't say that. I think they were the last of the really principled presidents that, that said, this is what I stand for. Ooh, uh, that's another podcast right there. Yeah. And, and <laughs> it, it's not that I have a great deal of love for either one, but, but I think they, they, I mean, I just, you know, I always said Ronald Reagan was like, listen to your granddad uh, on the TV. And maybe it was because of my age at the time, because I was a kiddo, uh, a, a teenager. Uh, but, but, and Jimmy Carter was just a, a, a good, he always struck me as being a good man, just a good man who lived what he, he believed in. So, uh, you know, and, and by the way, I don't agree with either of them politically. Amazing how I can feel that way about him, right? I should hate them both. So <laughs> anyway, I, well, I, just, I, I principle is a thing and principle doesn't demand agreement, but it is a question of are your principles based in, you know, some morality or ethical, uh, you know, steadiness. And then, you know, do you stick to them regardless of whether it loses office? And, you know, it's another debate as to whether, um, you know, there are a lot of things that I struggle with that I would trace most directly, even though probably not entirely, back to the Reagan era, of, which I think there was a huge political shift in this country uh, around early 1980s um, in the way that we uh, go about politics um, in general, but partisan part of politics, let me clarify. Uh, but... I think this is another episode. I think that the, we're, we're going to have to pick this up again next next time because I, you know, I apologize. This may have sounded a little dry to, to listeners, but, you know, this is the way we talk about these things, uh, folks. If we don't want to be screaming and hollering and something of worthy of of uh, late night television, you have to dig into this stuff and ask real questions and, and, and get in and listen to answers. And it's not always uh, riveting dialogue. Sometimes it's thoughtful dialogue. So hopefully, um, you know, we're, we're demonstrating some of that. And I, and I hope that they got enough disagreement here. Uh, I mean, I, I think 
we were trying to re- represent the views of one. They'll walk off a bridge. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, you can, you can stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Anyway. Ooh, pipe. <laughs> well, you know, you're from Bug Talk, so I'm sure you got a corn cob out back. In so, fact, I do. <laughs> so, no, in, in all seriousness, I think we've just barely scratched the surface. I, I made the comment to you, and I want to conclude with this. I made the comment to you that I remember when we used to say, that the Republican Party was the party of big business and that the Democratic Party was the party of the people. And, and the one interesting shift to me socially, and, we, and maybe this is just a teaser for the next time we talk about this issue, is big business is all Democrat now. You look at all the big business guys, you look at all the corporations, you look at the statements coming out of corporations, they're very much in alignment with, with Democratic policies. And when you look, whether you like them or not, if you look at the average Trump voter, the average Trump voter's income was far below the income of, of a Clinton voter. Uh, so I, I, I always find that interesting that things have shifted. Now, Trump is an anomaly because he was a populist. Uh, I think if you go back to Bush or, or Romney or McCain, it's probably different. And so that's full disclosure, by the way. Well, so. I, I, I think we do need to pick up with that. And, you know, the, my response to you, just as further teaser, was that, is that actually the shift? And it may be. Um, or is it the perception uh, as a result of, of some very good marketing? Um, because one of the truisms that uh, is often touted, and I happen to agree with, is that often people vote against their own best interest based on who they think for some reason uh, is in alignment with them. And, you know, I think that that's on both sides of the aisle. Of course. Um, but I often find that, uh, you know, people will also vote based on a, 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 a value they have, call it guns, call it abortion, call it whatever it is, that is that one issue that is very important to them. And I'm going to vote for the candidate that lines with me on that issue, even if that same candidate, despite that issue, is also putting forward policies that are continuing to keep me completely economically in the in the doghouse um, or work wise or whatnot. And I don't know if that's still exactly the case, but it seems like that too often this idea of I'm only voting this one issue because that's the only thing I care about. You might be cutting off your nose to spite your face. (laughs) Very well put. And and to your point, and then I think we need to stop because we've gone probably well over an hour. I think, you know, when it comes to the abortion issue, uh, pro-life people are much more likely to be single issue voters than pro-choice people. And and I'm just picking this issue because I know the numbers. I'm sure there are issues where it's reversed. Uh, And and so uh, to your point, we saw a very big support base for for Donald Trump from the evangelical Christian movement in this country. Uh, And regardless of you're a Trump supporter or not, I I think we can all agree there's some serious behavior issues on the part of that man. And so. But that wasn't their concern. Of course. Concern was he will put the the uh, what the the judges in if he gets the opportunity who will support this issue. And if I have to use the devil to get to 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 this thing that matters, then so be it. 
And I think we've done that in other circumstances on, on the left as well to, to a certain degree. Um, but, you know, maybe we need to start thinking with a more broader scope. And, and I like to pick on that one just because it's recent. So it's all in my memory because I'm old. You know, I forget. Things, it's all so. in a lot of people's memory. <laughs> let me tell you. Uh, anyway, listen, <laughs> I, I appreciate this discussion. I appreciate you. I appreciate Engineer Keith there in the booth. Engineer Keith, were there any things we needed to correct? I know you're awfully quiet today, Keith. I mean, I figured you'd be banging on the window over there after half of this stuff. It is the week and a half before school starts, and my my uh, my workload is crazy, crazy, crazy. But I did I did fact check the Fukushima disaster. Oh, thank you. Uh, 1971 was when it was commissioned. That's what I thought. I knew it was a so, 70s plant. So it's Gen three. Is that right? Uh, I couldn't find what generation. I was looking. Gen. Not not the end of the world, but but it is an older re- it is an older reactor, and it did not have the safeties that are now required by the Atomic Energy Commission in the United States. Well, and it's a question for us to pick up because if if we're building new reactors that have safeguards that will be ongoing, because thirty years from now a new reactor will now be a thirty year old reactor, right, and so forth. So you know, not only what do we do with the current old stock, but what do we do with what will become the new old stock? Um, you know, do we have a long term plan, or are we still? Uh, you know, planning for tomorrow and not for next year, so Seal, to speak. Sealing it in drums and sticking it in spent salt mines is the current plan, by the way. And uh, I don't think there's been a new reactor built in this country in 30 or 40 years. Uh, but what changes, and that's why the U.S. nuclear power industry and the German and the French nuclear power industry are very different, is they continue to add those safeguards as the technology advances. Update. Yes. Yeah. So, so while there have been no new reactors in however many years it is, uh, the plant is very modern because of those those changes. So, anyway, I, I, I thank you, Keith. Were there any other corrections? I, I may have thrown a couple more out that I want you to look at real quickly. No, I, I can't remember if there were any others either, so I, I could be mistaken. So anyway, I want well, to thank... Well, but listeners, if you have a correction, please. Uh, you, you can reach us at civildiscoursetnss at gmail.com. That's this is not a safe space at hey. gmail.com. Please write in. What are your thoughts? Where do you see division? Where do you see unreasonable dialogue? Where can you see us coming together? We want to hear your thoughts and if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast please do so please uh wait a minute what's the uh the millennial term smash that that like button (laughs) and give us those five star reviews while you and if you want to tell us we're terrible that's fine just give us the five stars along with telling us we're terrible but Uh, tell us why i mean tell me more (laughs) and by the way please tell your friends uh you know in this wide world of podcasting uh it's a very crowded field and we keep plugging away and, and Engineer Keith keeps laboring for hours with the midnight oil burning bright as he's getting ready to get new classes, by the way. Yes. And, and so we, we always appreciate that he, he makes this sacrifice for us. And uh, please, please, please keep telling your friends. I see I see the numbers. We are having growth slowly but surely. At the current rate, we may have a thousand listeners in 2020. I'm not even going to go there. (laughs) Hey, but when this show airs, most of us should be uh, sending our kids back to school or or if you're in school yourself listening, be safe, be healthy, have a good school year. 
And, uh, you know, we, we really appreciate you uh, checking in with us. I want to say thank you to Sacred Art University, where we uh, record and produce this show down here in Fairfield, Connecticut, the School of Communications and the Arts, and Dr. Jim Castingay, uh, our engineer, editor, contributing occasional co-host, Keith Zdrojevi. Yay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> The Lazarus Trio, Carl Groves, Mike Koeniger, who uh, is not only uh, a a fabulous member of that ensemble who brings us in and out of the show each week, but my illustrious co-host as well. Thank you for being here today. And the amazing and thoughtful. And if you didn't think he was thoughtful before, I know after this episode, you know I'm right. Charles Frederick Sacrese. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, hey, everybody go out there. Be kind. Watch out for those kiddos. If, if it's dark where you live in the northern extremes, if it's starting to get dark, watch out for those kiddos waiting for the bus in the next few months. And I hear many states have gone to permanent daylight savings time, so it will only get be darker. Worse. Take care <laughs> of your kids. You're going to need them when you get older. That's right. <laughs> change your diapers. <laughs> have a good one. Smile.